Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Fiction's virtual event space. We're so happy that all of you have joined us this evening for what promises to be a great literary talk. Um, for those of you who don't know us yet, the Center for Fiction is the only literary nonprofit that focuses on the creation and enjoyment of fiction. One of the ways we do that is through our events series. Uh, but we do it many other ways, uh, including through um, our independent bookstore. And all of you bought a book from the independent bookstore, and we're very grateful to you for that. Those sales go to support our Kids Read program and our Emerging Writing Fellowships and all the other work we do. So thank you for that. The bookstore is open if you do live in Brooklyn, so please stop by and see the staff there. They'll be happy to give you some more recommendations of great books to read. And without further ado, let me introduce our guest tonight. Julie Oranger is the author of two award-winning books, The Invisible Bridge, a New York Times bestselling novel, and How to Breathe Underwater, a collection of stories. Her new novel, The Flight Portfolio, tells the story of Varian Fry, the New York journalist who went to Marseille in 1940 to save writers and artists blacklisted by the Gestapo. All her work has been published by Alfred A. Knopf, and her books have been translated into 20 languages. Her stories have appeared in numerous anthologies, including the Granta Book of the American Short Story, the Scribner Anthology of American Short Fiction. She is the winner of the Paris Review's Plumpton Prize and has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Kalman Center at the New York Public Library, and Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, the McDowell Col Colony, and Yaddo. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and children and is at work on a novel set in New Orleans. And of course, we're here to celebrate Nicole Krause's new book, um, To Be a Man. Nicole is the author of the novels Forest Dark, Great House, The History of Love, and Man Walks Into a Room. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, Esquire, and the Best American Short Stories, and her books have been translated into more than 35 languages. She is currently the inaugural writer-in-residence at Columbia University's Mind, Brain, and Behavior Institute, and she lives in Brooklyn, New York, and we're very happy for both of you to join us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's funny, Nicole and I um, are neighbors. We live about two or three blocks away from each other. Um, and um, and I feel like maybe it's by virtue of our physical proximity that there are all these interesting resonances um, between our work. And I, I was so excited to read this collection of stories because even though that bio that we just heard says that I am working on this new novel, in fact, I'm, I'm actually secretly working on a short story collection too. So it's a wonderful Great. moment to like be immersed in the reading of incredible short stories, which this book is just packed with. So as we talked about earlier, I wonder if you could begin by reading to us a little bit from the last pages of the collection, which is so great because this is something that we never do with a novel, right? I would never say to you if we were talking about your novel, just read us the last two pages, right? Okay, I'm going to do that. and. Um... I'll just set it up a tiny, tiny bit um, and explain that this is the last story in the book, of course, and it's also the title story, To Be a Man. Um, and this is a story that has four parts. It is narrated by a woman who is looking at the various men in her life. So the first part is about her father. The second part is about a lover of hers. The third part is about an Israeli friend. And the last part is about her children, her two boys. And together, the hope is that they create a kind of um, symphonic view of her experience of, of men and other things. So this is from the very end. This is about her boys. Enormous at birth, both are now so slender that their rib cages are visible under their skin when they lift their shirts over their heads. I know everything about what is visible of their bone structure beneath the skin and about the skin itself, the precise location of each beauty mark and when it arrived and the scars and what caused them. I know in what direction the hair on their heads grow, their hair on their heads grows and the way they smell at night and in the morning and all the many faces they went through before the ones they each wear now. Naturally I do. When the older one worries that he is too thin and weak, 
I tell him how my brother had been built the same way when he was young, until, without warning, like a storm comes so suddenly that someone somewhere must have prayed for it, a change came over him. That the thinness is in their genes, the sticks for arms and narrow waist and ribs poking out, all of it written into their bodies like an ancient story, but that sooner or later the time will come when the smallness and thinness will be overwritten, subsumed by mass, and the boys they are now will disappear, buried inside the men they will become. Your brother, he asks, trying to imagine it. My brother, who once, but only once, he saw in a moment of fury he failed to contain, pushed me across the room and threatened me with a fist. The small one is still too young to long for love. He is surrounded by love and that is still enough for him. The older one has already begun to long for it, but his body hasn't yet caught up with him. About this, he can still joke with me. For now, desire and the workings of the body are still subjects for humor. But as the months pass, something has begun to loom behind it, larger and larger. He is waiting for the changes he sees overtaking his friends and worries they will never come to him, that he will never desire the way others do. It's like a switch, friends who have boys tell me. One day it goes on, and after that, things are never the same. The door closes on one side and opens to another, and that's that. Another friend, a man, says that he had been a quiet reader all through childhood, and then between one month and the next, he began to throw chairs. This worries the older one, too. The possibility that he will no longer be who he has always been, that he will lose something of his sensitivity, so valued by everyone who loves him, that he will become capable of violence. When I go to kiss him goodnight, he curls his body into mine and in a nervous voice tells me that he wants to remain a child, that he doesn't want anything to change. But already he is no longer a child. He is standing out on a bank between the shore and a sea that goes on and on. And the water, as they say, is rising. I, I love those pages so much. And I must say that they also, as the mother of a 10 year old boy, they also struck fear into my heart because of how eloquent they are about the passing of time and the fleetingness of, of our initial relationships with our children, the ways that we seem to sort of possess them. And then they move past that relationship into uh, independent selves. Um, but one thing that I was struck by um, reading those pages and then thinking kind of in a larger sense about your work, uh, both in this book and in your novels, um, is, is the way these stories and so much of your other work see men from both the inside and the outside. Um, they are, the stories are rich with characters who are fascinated by men and are trying to understand them they're also populated by characters who inhabit male persona. Um, and I, um, I'm, I'm interested in that kind of personally because I've also written a lot from the point of view of male characters. And I, I wanna talk about that process of, of understanding and inhabiting maleness, um, which is not necessarily the same as inhabiting masculinity. I feel like you do a nice job in this book of sort of drawing distinctions between different kinds of manifestations of being male. Um, I want to ask what it was that initially drove you to write male characters from their own point of view um, in your other work and here, and then what brought you to the kind of careful examination of men from women's perspectives that we have in these pages. I think I've just always felt that whatever experience at hand that I had was just not enough for me. I think that there was just for me, writing and reading are, have this kind of union of an opportunity to go beyond what we daily experience to the other or something else. And so it's like in that spirit of adventure, you have this opportunity to like become something else or live someplace else. And I think it's not an accident that my work is always also set in so many locations because I can't live everywhere, but I want to. <laughs> I want to be, I want to have more lives than we're each allowed. And I think 
at the same time, particularly about men and a certain kind of man, I, I guess I should also say a certain kind of um, larger than life, maybe stubborn, maybe um, a kind of in, intense man has always fascinated me just to know what it feels like to walk through the world and think like that. Because of course, as girls and women, we often don't have that kind of opportunity. But I think, you know, in the end, the characters that I write or that I'm drawn to inhabit, they're always characters that I have a kind of, I guess, a tenderness for, and I don't always understand. Why. There's a character, for example, a man in Great House, um, his name is Aaron, he's a father, and he's a pretty tyrannical father. And I remember writing him from the start and just feeling like, why would I want to spend time inside of this person? He's so difficult. He's so seemingly unforgiving. Uh, he's so right. tough on his son. And yet with time, that began to break down and open itself to me so that I could see what it was about his mistakes or his regrets that made me feel some compassion or made me feel like him, <laughs> that I mm -hmm. that be him. Um, so I think that journey interests me, the journey from the farness that ends up feeling extremely intimate and extremely personal to me. Yes, well, um, I read in an interview, I think it was with The Atlantic, in which you were talking about how um, you were sort of laughing in a sense at the idea of, of the over-application of the idea of autofiction and how, you know, we're always asked that question first about our novels, whether they have any uh, overt relation to our own experience or not. And I, I find it interesting that you're drawing that connection between um, the, I guess, the adventure of writing something that is other than you, uh, which actually sort of brings one back to the self, you know. Um, and I, I wondered if, um, in the course of writing these stories, you found yourself kind of wrestling with or playing with or resisting the idea of, um, of autofiction um, and how that might have manifested in these pages. I, I know it's so much a subject of how we talk about literature now, but truly, I don't feel that question when I'm writing. I'm just like, yeah. I'm like drawing like a moth to the light to whatever that light happens to be. And truly, I feel I have very little choice in, in what I'm drawn to want to be or become or study or explore. Yeah. Um, and one thing I will say is that, you know, when I started writing fiction, I was 25 when I wrote my first novel. And I do remember an older writer saying to me, well, of course you wrote a novel about a man who has no memory and who has amnesia, like nothing has happened to you. And I really like took umbrage at that at the time, thinking like actually an awful lot has already happened to me. And now like some 20 years later, I feel a little bit more humble before that comment because now a lot has happened to me and so much has happened to me that I find a lot of that material irresistible and that they're not only to me but to my friends the people I live alongside in, in an intimate way that these stories seem to present themselves whether <laughs> whether I want them or not and I and I end up bringing a lot of experience you know constantly into my into my work um, hopefully in a kind of transformed way but I know yeah. it is like I never think am, am I now writing autofiction or am I now inventing? It's such a complicated, beautiful mix. Like there's that, um, there's a beautiful thing that E.M. Foster once wrote where he was trying to describe the writer's process. And he described it as a kind of lowering of the bucket down into the subconscious. And what's picked up is a kind of, you know, what's drawn up is a surprise and that we take mm. that out of the subconscious and we mix it with, with real experience, with realism, and some degree of magic. And that's what creates the work. And I don't think we can resist what we draw. My experience is like, I can dump it, but it will just come back again. Yeah, yeah, well, one of the things that, that fascinates me in what you are, were just saying was the, um, the way our relationship to our material um, and to our sense of our own experience changes over time. Um, and one thing that's fascinating about this book is that though 
most of the stories in the book were written over um, an eight-year period, um, say between 2012 and now. Um, the earliest of these stories was published in 2002, I believe. And so here in these pages, we actually have a kind of of compendium of who you have been as a writer over the last like 20 years, which is kind of amazing. Um, I, and I'd love to hear you talk since your first story collection about your relationship with the short story and how it developed over the years that these stories span in your writing life. Yeah, I think I came obviously to the short story in a backwards fashion because I left so like wildly and without training into fiction because I had for the years preceding that since I was a teenager I had been writing poetry and thinking about poetry and I just kind of hit a wall there and because I think as writers we're always looking for the way or the next way that we can be most free as a writer yeah right. at that point it's like okay I'm going to completely leave this behind and try something else and and the novel gave me this enormous kind of almost reckless freedom and a sense of this long project that was ultimately always going to be an imperfect undertaking, but which felt to me authentically to fit me. So I never really thought about short stories and except for one. So there's the, the, the story that goes way back, which was written um, right after 9-11. I wrote right after I finished my first novel. And so I wrote that short story and then didn't try my hand at any for a long time. Um, and I'll come back to what you said earlier about sort of the themes that resonate no matter how much time passes. But I think now, it's not that I see the short story as so different than novels or even poetry. I have to say I've been asked, as you're probably often asked, why do you write one or another? And I think truly I feel it as a kind of continuous inhabiting of a space and it's just like how much time I have on that stage, what my instruments are, how many stage sets I'm allowed um, before somebody like pulls me off with a cane. <laughs> it's over. And so I think with a short story, I know like my time is going to be brief. And so that allows for all kinds of things. I mean, we know we have to land the ending like like an Olympic skater lands a jump, right? You have to land an ending. Like endings of short stories are so memorable. Whereas I don't know that endings of novels really are. They aren't often the thing that stays with us. Mm -hmm. but the endings of short stories are. And I think that we, you know, you're, you're driving, the momentum is toward that end. But at the same time, there's this chance to be really, really playful and to inhabit voices that you couldn't sustain over the course of a novel. I couldn't. Like for example, the story in this book, In the Garden, which is, an assistant to the most famous landscape architect, as he's called in the story in Latin America. And it's a story about devotion and it's a somewhat strange story. And I, I couldn't have inhabited that place for very long for many reasons. Um, not enough knowledge, not emotionally, I couldn't have handled it. But we know, I like, you know, the story I know that I could. And so I just found like I could, I don't know, I could like dance a little bit more easily. I could improvise. Um, a little bit more easily than I could necessarily elsewhere in longer forms. Yeah, well, I love the the stories in which the fabric of reality um, frays a little bit in ways that um, that feel absolutely appropriate for the short story, but that might be more difficult to sustain to sustain at greater length. One of the stories I wanted to mention along those lines was uh, the one called "I Am Asleep, But My Heart Is Awake." Mm. Um, and this is a story about a woman who's staying in her dead father's apartment in Tel Aviv. Um, and a friend of her father arrives one day and lets himself in. It's not somebody she's ever met or who she's ever heard her father mention, but he seems to be totally comfortable in the apartment. And he seems to be under some kind of instruction to take care of her, but we don't know why or by whom. Um, and I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the complicated caregiving relationship that involved that evolves over the course of that story and maybe also by way of that a little bit about the complexities of relationships between fathers and daughters in this collection so i just was a oh yeah a thread that i loved here both of those things okay um so you said at some point we don't know you know the nature of that relationship and i didn't know the nature of that relationship like 
actually for years. I, I should say that many of these stories were started and then put down and I wrote for us dark and then I returned to them again. So I think there are some talk to go back to that like subconscious river where many things happen for us as writers. I think solutions were formed for these stories while I wasn't writing them, while I was thinking about other things. And I remember that particular story, um, I'm Asleep But My Heart Is Awake, which is a line from um, Song of Songs, um, was just so difficult for me to figure out because, again, I just wrote it instinctively. Here, here's this story about a woman dealing with grief and who was this person in her father's apartment, an apartment she didn't even know that her father owned. Um, I remember even at some point sending that story, the part of it that I have to Edgar Carrot and saying, how should this end? How that should end. You're going to have to figure that one out. Um, um, of course, one never expects an answer, but one still hopes for one from, from, from friends. So I think in the end, especially, story, from, especially from, like from the great master of short stories yeah. um, and endings. Um, but I think, you know, at some point, I understood that that story um, was about two things. I hope more than two things too, but one was the ways in which we all come to this moment in our lives, many moments in which we understand, and it's really a kind of deep and uncomfortable and sometimes uncanny understanding that our parents were much larger beings than we ever imagined as children, that they had vast hallways and, and back rooms of existence that we had no access to. And there's something both wonderful about that and that it liberates us when we become parents to have those similar um, unknown places to our children, but also a little bit frightening in that these people who are the most intimate people to us still have vast fields of being that are their own, that were kept from us. And so in some ways, I think it's, I understood that this apartment was partly that. And then, you know, this, it's a story, I guess, in some ways, which is also questions the idea of how grief evolves and how we think of those that leave us, how we think about souls that linger or don't linger. And I think I wanted to leave the question of this figure, this man who, who is there to either take care of her or not, um, I wanted to leave it open to the reader to kind of, um, I didn't want to resolve fully who he was, um, but he resolved, in the end, she is resolved, I think, in her understanding that there are things that we come to live with, um, grief and loss that we come in order to go on living. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned the way that this story seemed to resist solving, right? Yes. And I, I feel like that is, it's so, um, it's so intrinsic to the material. You know, you're writing about an experience of life that is insoluble. It's, it's, it's our essential conundrum, right? That we cannot bear grief, but we have to in order to go on. Um, and so, and that feeling has no end. That, that is a state of ongoingness. Um, and I felt like that, like the story came to that and that was the ending. It was sort of like the, the sense that there could be no end to that, to those questions. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm just laughing at your mentioning Eckhart because I have like right here next, I have my question that <laughs> not knowing that you and Eckhart were friends, I have a question about Eckhart like now I need to ask. Um, I, you know, I love the, um, comedic range of these stories. I love the fact that that they're able to um, that within a collection that is, you know, a few hundred pages long, um, there there is a great gravitas and there is a, a great sort of um, scope in the way you address um, the issues that are um, most dire to us right now. But then there's also the possibility of laughter around every corner. Um, and I, I felt that especially um, in the pages of uh, The Husband, uh, a story in which an Israeli governmental organization, which is referred to alternately in the story as social services or special services, we're never quite sure which, <laughs> delivers an 
elderly man in a brown hat to the narrator's mother, uh, a man who social or special services claim was once her husband. And though she laughs uproariously at the suggestion, she ends up taking this man, this Hungarian mathematician, into her home and having a relationship with him and becoming his lover um, and eventually asking her children to accept him. Um, and reading this story, especially, I, I felt like I wanted to ask you whether Edgar Caret was an influence and especially whether his humor had affected the way you, you handled some of this most dire material having to do with our, our deepest existential questions. I wonder if you if that association came because he is like Tel Aviv is so much his short story territory because yeah. I feel like humor is so eccentric and inimitable that there'd be no chance of like it rubbing off on anybody. Um, but um, I think actually what I you know we have so many moods as writers right and there's so, there's so many um, like ways of being you want to have even just stylistically on the page and again in the same way that like we don't have enough lives i think we don't as writers we don't we want more and more chances to try out all of those things which can't live together otherwise the stories or the novels would be chaotic right and i think i was setting into that story that 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 i was going to allow like the pleasure maximum pleasure of that the absurdity of that um story and all of its funny mishaps but you know it's interesting that really that story came to me because there were so many as you i'm sure know there were so many people after the holocaust that you know the red cross and other organizations returned right so that that was a thing in israel and and elsewhere that there that you could at back then suddenly have a lost husband or a lost wife or sibling or friend suddenly return to you looking nothing like what they once were and long after you had given them up for loss and it didn't ever happen enough those cases were far too few but it did happen um for a long time and so there is something ridiculous and wonderful and so israeli to me about perpetuating that idea that somehow that that, that the state could still somehow deliver these lost people the only problem in this story is that this woman's husband and it's told by the daughters the narrators the, the grown daughters and they all know very well that the real husband is buried like down the street in the cemetery in tel aviv and i think it became about that and it became also about you know these two different choices one here are these two women one the daughter divorced and the mother who has lost her husband but they're aligned in at least as the daughter to marcy's their agreement that there is a peace and pleasure of being without a husband, to be finally, to be allowed to be free of the duty of that form of devotion or taking care of or delivering oneself every day to such a relationship. And when her mother tells a story and laughs, she thinks she and her mother are in agreement about this. And then somehow the mother changes on her and takes this man in. And I think in the end, there's this, question the story kind of writes itself around this question of what do we do with what life delivers to us right like do we embrace or not do we walk toward it or do we walk away from it yeah and i i felt also a um a profound sense of the narrator's betrayal in this story you know the way in which she um not that she's embodying her father's relationship to her mother by any means, but just that she feels like she's come to a place in her relationship with her mother where they can really be together in their aloneness um, or in their lack of need of a, of a spouse. And I, I really felt her resentment so powerfully and, um, and her resistance to the idea that something new could arrive in her mother's life that would sort of challenge the stasis of her own life, perhaps. Um, so I don't know, I just loved, I, I just loved how many things were unexpected in the story. And we haven't even discussed the fact that uh, her brother and his husband um, have a baby in that story who is, you know, delivered by a surrogate in Nepal, and how that brings us to questions of life and death, which I feel like you, you know, like, are, are just, everywhere in this collection. Um, 
but one of the one of the places where one of the places where I feel you write most eloquently about beginnings and endings, um, both of lives and of marriages, uh, is in the story uh, End Days, in which there's a young woman, Noah, who is delivering flowers to a wedding in Northern California while fires are closing in all around. Um, and meanwhile, her middle-aged parents have just finalized their divorce in front of a rabbi, a scribe, and the rabbi's young assistant. Um, and her mother has gone off to Vienna to take care of her own mother. And uh, her father is an archaeologist who's excavating Megiddo. Um, I, I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about beginnings and endings, especially beginnings and endings of marriages, um, as they manifest in that beautiful story and how they, maybe how they connect with our mortality or how they bring it home to us in that story in which danger seems to be, mortal danger is encroaching all around in the form of this fire. Yeah. I think I think it of it, I love the idea of births and deaths and beginning and endings, but I think in my mind, it's more a question of a threshold at a door, that there are so many moments in this book where characters are standing at a threshold of do they stay or do they go? And to stay means to continue in a comfortable, safe, known relationship or world and to and and you know with all of the stability that that brings and to go is to enter into independence freedom fresh experience and i think that particular conflict and some of the characters stay as does the woman in future emergencies or the man in, in the garden and some of them like in um to be a man or in a more go but that that conflict which i think um, has always fascinated me. Obviously, that Future Emergency Stories was written in 2002, so this is an old um, fascination for me. But this the sense of at any moment in our lives, we're always on that spectrum of needing either um, the comfort of belonging someplace. And at the same time, we are, you know, we natively as human beings understand that it is our destiny, I guess, to evolve, then we have this hunger for change. And I think that, you know, the fault line there, how do you negotiate that? Because one can't do both, right? And so there's always this pull towards freedom, but also the question of what is what is sacrificed, or this pull towards staying and belonging, and all that is all the other lives, um, and the evolution of being that's lost in that option. Yes, well, I, I feel like those tensions are really present in the way you write about Judaism as well um, in that story and in others. Um, I was really interested in the way the sort of disjuncture between observant and, and more secular Judaism um, manifested in that story. Um, I, I guess I just wondered if that was, how, how conscious of a choice that was for that story um, or how, you came to know that the that the story is going to end in a place of not only personal reckoning but perhaps also of a kind of religious reckoning. Yeah, I think I thought of that story very much about you know as about a young woman who, like other young women in these stories, is kind of wrestling back for herself the right to define herself rather than have herself be defined by the decisions and lives of those around her or the way that she's seen by those around her. That story really was like many in the book, kind of, it came together with a trio of unlike things. So I had, it was during some years back when there were, of course, as there are now every year, wildfires, terrible wildfires in California. I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about the nature of divorce and particularly I had witnessed one of these um, get ceremonies and I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about this experience I'd had kind of by chance in my haphazard way of researching things that I don't know if I'm ever going to use or not. Um, an experience I had of going with the archaeologist who has excavated Megiddo for some 20 years um, to the site with him and just sort of watching that unfold. And I don't think I could have told you I can never tell you when I'm starting out where I mean to be going. Um, but I think that, you know, the, 
that end of that story surprised me in, in many ways as much as it would surprise the reader. Um, and I think, you know, there's a sense there of um, the question of old orders, whatever those orders may be, whether they're the personal ones in our familial lives or our personal lives, or whether they're larger orders of society and civilization, the pull towards those things collapsing and the question of, you know, what will be formed in their place, which unfortunately feels rather relevant um, right now in our time. Yeah, um, yes, well, so so much of this book feels uh, immediately relevant. Um, and certainly uh, reading the story you mentioned earlier, Amour, um, in which there are two friends who meet in a refugee camp after some disaster, um, just felt so much like it partook of our, you know, of the feeling of emergency that we've we've been in for some time now. Um, and the feeling of profound uncertainty, even though in that story, um, the disaster has risen to a point that's far beyond what we're currently inhabiting. Um, and the questions of life and death are even perhaps more immediate than they are for a lot of us just now. But um, one of the things that that I really want to talk to you about and that that lives in that story so beautifully, as in another one that I want to mention, is uh, is the presence of film. Um, and so in, in that story, uh, in this refugee camp, there are two old friends who meet. Um, the woman, Sophie, has, a, has this incredible talent for recounting movies um, and bringing them back to life. Um, and so you write um, in this story, right, uh, Sophie could describe whole scenes, the light, the camera angles, she could even remember the lines, and when she unspooled these films, her gray violet eyes softened as if she were watching them again, projected on the tarpaulin of makeshift tents, the rubbled walls, the filthy sky cross-hatched with wires. Whoever was nearby or waiting with us on the line for the food kits, vaccines, or juice boxes that might or might not come would quiet down and listen too. And without any evidence to back it up, I wanna say that the movies she blew into our minds with her magic lantern words achieved their higher form, their highest, with everything stripped away from them. So, the same trick that Sophie achieves in that story, I feel that you achieve repeatedly <laughs> in the book, um, but especially in the story called Seeing Your Shoddy, when you write about A Taste of Cherry. Um, and I, I just felt like I saw that film in high definition. Um, and I, I just, I wanna talk about how that story came about. Um, and I guess, well, I have a number of questions about the story, but let's let's start with that. Let's start maybe with uh, I, I'm curious to know were you were you fascinated with that film? Were you yourself fascinated with her shoddy? What was the what was the initial spark yeah. of connection there? Yeah. So um, I saw that film when it first came out in the um, late '90s, and I was a student in London, and I went to go see it by myself, and I had never seen any of Kurosami's films. And it just absolutely blew me away. And it, it haunted me for many, many, many years. And whenever it would be playing someplace in Manhattan or wherever it was, I would go and see it again. So I think I probably saw it in 20 years, I don't know, maybe four times. And I just had this idea that I somehow wanted to work out what it was about that film that got under my skin so much because it's a really unusual film, particularly the ending, which the story addresses. The thing about that movie is that it is um, it, it's about a man who's going who wants to kill himself, and so he has dug this grave in this bone dry hill outside of Tehran, and he needs only to find somebody to bury him in the morning after he's laid down in it and taking these sleeping pills, and the actor who plays the part, his name is Hamayun Arshadi, thus the title, seeing Arshadi, is it's the film is almost entirely um, focused on his face or his body. It, it takes up the, the screen almost the entire time. And he has the most extraordinary face. And at some point or other in my haunting, I found out that Urshadi was not an actor, that Kiristami had seen him sitting in a taxi in Tehran and like knocked in the window, which apparently is something Kiristami did very often with people and said, would you be in my film? And 
Um, there's something about this man's face that suggests he couldn't possibly be acting this grief or whatever it is that would lead someone to want to end their, his life. And so the character in my story becomes kind of obsessed with that. Um, and I, just to tell you one quick side story about this story, because I, it still moves me. It happened a few years ago, but that story was ultimately published in The New Yorker. And um, suffice to say that the character in the novel See, thinks she sees him in Japan and she wants to try to save him. She, she sort of confuses him or um, thinks he must be one of the same as his character and sort of runs after him and loses him. When this story came out in The New Yorker, um, it was after Kurosami, the director, had died. But I got this email from his son and he said, oh, you know, my father would have loved this story and people are writing to me about it. And I asked him, do you know if this actor, Shadi, read the story? And he said, well, I'll find out. And so he wrote to his sister in Tehran. And the next day I got an email back and it said, he got, he read your story and it couldn't have come at a more perfect time because he had been having a really hard time and he was really down. And suddenly his phone is ringing off the hook and he's getting all these texts. And then the bottom of the email was this, was this screenshot of Urshadi's Facebook page and he had just, posted the story without comment. And it just was like one of those moments that very rarely happen, but they do happen to us as writers where life imitates art, imitates life, imitates art, but you actually see in real time your story come to life or touch life in, in ways that you only predicted but couldn't have really hoped for, you know? Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, again, that story became about many other things aside from what it is to live for a long time with a film and see how it seeps into your being and how you connect with your best friend over that and you both see it in different ways and it becomes different things to you. But in the end, that story, like the rest, surprised me because it became a story that to me is about the ways in which, as young women, we so often attribute our strengths and skills and wildness and life force to things outside of us. Sometimes men, sometimes art, all kinds of things. But that actually, at least these young women in the story recognize only years and years later after they've both had kids of their own that all of that they dragged up from the depths of their own being. Um, that's right. And I think that one of the things that was so powerful in that story, too, was the um, the way in which we feel the narrator's deeply personal relationship with the film and with Ashadi. And then all of a sudden she learns that her friend has also had this deeply personal relationship. And so it's it's the um, so there is a way in which like those existences were running in parallel and in augmenting each other. But then they both felt I don't know, they also felt somehow subtly in competition or even alone, you know, like isolated from one another and to the point right. that. Well, I would just say her friend is like in, in many ways the opposite of her and that her friend is this Israeli actress and she's just vivacious and so like just completely full of life. And um, she's, she lives this kind of ongoing drama, but a drama that it's authentic as if she's just constantly experimenting, experimenting with being and selfhood. And this narrator, I suppose, in some ways is envious of that, but also that this friend's experience of seeing that film seems somehow richer, deeper, more right than her own. And it, and it drives her to make certain decisions even about her life. And only years later, when they connect again, um, is there a kind of fresh or, or changed understanding of that? But I think, you know, I think for those of us who are, you know, we find ourselves most at home in that other parallel world of the art, the books, the films, the music that we love. Um, and we go there um, to feel more at home. I think those things become very often more real to us. They can feel more real to us than our lives themselves right. and daily mundane existence that we have to report to um, when we're not reading or seeing great films. Absolutely. Um yeah, I, I want to uh, make sure that we have enough time for questions from the audience. Um, and so I, I want to move to that soon, but I just wanted to 
maybe ask one more question of my own before we did that, because what you mentioned about the um, about women's imperfect sense of the, the power that they possess or the questions they have about uh, the degree to which they possess power or where that power originates, um, those questions were so resonant to me um, in the collection's first story, Switzerland, um, which is about a, um, a, a young girl's um, time living in Switzerland with, with in close proximity to two older girls, um, one of whom uh, has an experience with a much older man that contains a lot of uh, apparent danger and mystery. Um, and perhaps maybe just before we break to audience questions, I would I would want to just ask you to talk a little bit about um, about the power dynamics in that story, especially between the women and and in the women's perception of their own power. Yeah, I think it, you know I, I've often read about, and we constantly are inundated with really difficult narratives of the ways in which women are. Um, Kind of shaped by, in, in painful ways, shaped by their experiences with men, particularly when they're young, and that there's a kind of loss of power there. So that you know, a recognition of the very moment one becomes vulnerable, um, or the very moment one comes into a certain kind of power, the power to attract men, one also comes into enormous vulnerability. And I was drawn to wanting to write a somewhat different story, which felt closer to things that I experienced as a young woman, which has to do with resisting that in some sense. Not that we can always, but that there, there is a desire in many young women, certainly the ones that I was around and who I felt close to, to kind of use those experiences of theater in which to experiment with themselves and mm -hmm. to define that the men really were largely irrelevant in yeah. that equation, that it was a question of um, how far could one go, how strong could one be, or um, how what was the limits um, of that vulnerability and of that strength. and and. You know, the, the story draws a lot on experiences that I had as a 13-year-old going to boarding school in Geneva, but of course, a lot of it was also um, imagined and invented. Um, and I think the experience of that time kind of cross-pollinated with a friendship that I had later in life, still have, with a woman much younger than me who I met at a, she's a, um, this is kind of quite, quite extraordinary, she's a, um, Shibari performance. She does this kind of Japanese bondage, but she had these brilliant explanations in our very first conversation, which has now gone on over many years, about the difference between power and control and the way that for her as a young woman, she was experimenting with those things. And I think that struck me. So those two experiences sort of joined together in my mind and became this story. Um, I, I love that. And I and the thing that I just take away from that story and that I'm so excited for our audience members to come to is the um is the uh the way the ending has it both ways. You know, the ending will not reveal to us exactly whether the character whom the protagonist is fascinated by um was ultimately in power or not. And we can believe then simultaneously in uh, the ways that she would have been able to wield power and the ways that she was likely exploited. Um, and I just, I love those tensions within the story. So thank you for that reading experience. It was just wonderful. Um, I, I wonder if we should now maybe turn to the audience's questions. Um, yes. Um, so I'm gonna figure out how this works here. <laughs> so let's see. I think, um, yeah, there we go. Okay, and I also see in the side that my video was cutting in and out, so my apologies. I don't know if that was on my end or not, but um, apologies for that. I hope you could at least hear. Um, so the first question is, not often do novels make me cry, but the history of love was so beautifully written. Okay, okay, <laughs> it brought me to tears. Um, when sitting down to write a story, is it ever your goal to make your readers cry? Do you see that as an accomplishment? Um, I, you know, it's funny, I, I, 
I have sometimes said to readers who have come up to me that it's the only time in life when you can say I'm glad that I made you cry, I suppose, in some ways. Um, because it's always, the, the hope is, at least my experience of, of being brought to tears in literature is that there's some catharsis there. Um, I'm not aware of wanting to make readers cry when I'm working, I, but I am aware of um, feeling that unless I am moved by what I read, unless I'm moved in like a literal sense, I am not in the same place as I was before. Something in me has been ideally shifted, maybe slightly, maybe especially when we were younger readers and much more impressionable, sometimes enormous shifts of being. Um, but if I haven't managed that, then in some sense, I failed at what I wanted to do. So whether it, it is expressed in tears or laughter or even to confound is okay too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so let's see, um, other, okay. Um, Um, so this is a question about, um, writing about, um, being a mother and noticing our children. And the question is, did I write those details in real time or while I was reminiscing? So, um, this is a kind of complicated subject. And I wonder, Julia, if you think about this sometimes, it's always complicated to know what, we are allowed who we are allowed to write about <laughs> and and how um to what degree writing about those people and those things we experience with those people closely is ever in any sense betrayal um and so i'm very 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 careful about writing about my own children and i do feel like i had to sort of transform anything um that i've ever written about them in a larger degree than I've transformed other aspects of, of, of people I've known. Um, but I think, you know, the, the thing about the children at the end of this story that I read is that I didn't read this part, but just earlier, there's a bit where the narrator says, you know, isn't it our, our job to kind of write, to witness them? Or maybe I did read that part, I can't remember. But just that, that somehow part of parenthood, both motherhood and fatherhood, is to watch and remember and recall so that somehow we begin to teach our children the story of who they are, right? Which they will then take the reins of and break, hopefully, and claim for themselves. Um, I actually have these two journals that I wrote for each of my kids starting when they were born, which has, you know, just all of these observations of them. But a friend of mine once very wisely said that I shouldn't give it to them until they were like, old enough that they were already who they were going to become <laughs> my own vision of them in any way um inform their own so um yeah well i can tell you what a gift that is because my my mother did the same thing for me she kept a journal of my like first year you know and uh, i came across it not long before my own first child was born um and it was just so incredible to like learn from my mother who at that point, you know, my mother died when I was 20. Like she wasn't teaching, she couldn't teach me anything directly at that point. And yet she was teaching me through what she had recorded. And I feel like no matter what the circumstances had been, the fact that she was recording from within that experience was so beautiful and valuable. So that's amazing yeah, that you did that. I, a friend of mine just the other day said what, I suppose should be obvious, but struck me deeply. And I think we've all heard this of some version, but that attentiveness is a form of love. And I think that, you know, going back to what I said about inhabiting characters that I have some tenderness for, compassion for, I think there is something about attention, like to, to pay attention to people and to watch people, um, whether they're real or whether they're happening in on the page. Um, it's a, is in a sense like the thing that I aspire to as a writer. I hope my students who are present are really hearing you say that. I feel like so, that's something that we talk about all the time in the classes, you know, that, that so much of what we try to do is to, um, to pay ardent attention to who these people are that we're creating and to 
what exists in the world that can enrich our portrayal of other human beings. So I love that. Yeah, maybe maybe that. to add one more thought to that and to connect it again to parenthood or motherhood. I always think that there's this really complicated task at hand with parenthood and, and it resonates with writing characters, which is how does one allow or teach one's kids, make a space for one's children to be free next to you? And at the same time, how do you offer them enough reflections of who they are that they have the opportunity to better become who they want to be, right? So without saying that they become something that you want or that other people want, just that they should feel free, but also that they should have some um, sign from you, some, some way toward becoming, right, that you give them. And I think it's that way a lot with characters in the page that you that reins can't be too tight, right? You have to allow, that's why I keep saying that my stories surprise me and I, I really, really mean it. Like in, unless I discover something, then it's not worth writing the story. And so I've learned things from the characters, but I have to give them enough space in the page to be free. And at the same time, I can't, they can't be totally free. The story would never get written, right? No, or it'd be a terrible story. So this is constant. I'm pulling back for allowing things to evolve and then a tightening of the reins in order to draw the story toward a shape and meaning and coherence. Yeah, well, there's a beautiful question about that here in the Q&A. Um, do you see that one about being surprised by your endings? Oh, yeah. Um, so how has your approach to endings evolved over time as you return to old stories or begin new ones? Is there something you feel your endings have in common? Um, I don't know beyond that, like, I, again, I think of these stories, or I think of all writing is very, very improvisatory, but also musical. So I don't know if any of you who are listening read that beautiful piece about the musician Keith Jarrett, um, who was has always been one of my favorite musicians and has these you know, known for these incredible live concert, these improvisations that he would do. Um, and the question of how he would know, like <laughs> where to end those, how do you build something um, without knowing where you're going, but be able to get to a point where all things come sort of together at the end. I don't know how he knows it. And I, 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 don't, I don't know that I get that right as a writer, but um, I do know that it's always, um, just that it's always like a relief to me when I finally like reach the note, you know what I mean, um, and get to the end, and it, and it feels right to me. Um, let's see. Um, um, so there's a question about how I know whether something that I start is a story or a novel. I, I, I really play a lot, like on my computer. <laughs> a lot of my mornings are just m sort of making things up and not knowing whether they're ever going to feel alive or feel significant enough to me. And there's so many things that I write that get completely forgotten. Um, and then every once in a while, there's a moment in the work where I don't know how else to put it except that like the mortal life is blown into a character or into the language and something just leaps to life and feels authentic to me. And until that point, it's just not, it feels somehow like I'm trying or it doesn't feel convincing. Um, and the moment the thing is alive, it's just a question of sort of following it. And I would say a lot of the stories were the beginnings were um, efforts to just maybe write a novel, you know, and mm -hmm. for a long time they seemed like maybe they might be beginning a novel and then they got forgotten and put aside, but they were alive enough that though they didn't become a novel, they sort of demanded my attention sometimes, as I said, years later. Um, and I think, you know, there's probably lots of things hidden on my computer somewhere or other that will still become stories um, and maybe even novels um, one day. Um, I'm kind of curious to know, Nicole, if you've been working on any short stories during the pandemic. Yeah, I I, um, I wrote one that's coming out in the next issue of Harper's, which is actually set in the pandemic, which surprised me um, because everything in me wanted to escape 
our circumstances during like lockdown and I felt like my imagination was my one like path to escape that and, yeah that and running in the park every morning so I kind of set on the idea of starting this novel that was going to be about Iran of all places like you know not the best place to escape to if you're going to escape but still far enough away from from here and then I put that aside and I think this was like in in May um and I started to become fascinated with this idea of like all of the dead and how we were counting them but we couldn't see them nobody could ever mm -hmm. see them we were dying and so I ended up writing this story um, called Drawing from Life, and it's about, um, in Judaism, we have this um, tradition of the shamrim, of, of sitting with the dead um, in the time between when they die and when they're buried, and the idea is that you, you know, you watch over them while their soul perhaps is still with them, and, and so it's about this painter, anyone can fill that task, and, and all kinds of people do, and so it's about this painter who takes on that job, and I've never written something things so close to what's happening now normally it takes years for material to settle down and to return again like transformed into something else so um that was unusual for me but i'm glad that you did that and i'm glad for all the people who are doing that right now that that there is a um you know that there's an interpretive impulse that people are following now you know because i think that one of the things that's so difficult about this moment is how hard it is to make sense of it and that's one of the things that fiction does so well it 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 brings us the reminder of order um even when that order is deeply complicated and when it can't explain away all the things that are that are difficult um it's still helps us to make sense of experience that feels nonsensical or that resists um, the immediate application of meaning. And so I, I've, felt, I've felt personally really grateful for, for anything that, that helps us, I think, to, um, to hash through the lack of meaning that seems to accrue all around us over the last few months. Yeah, I mean, I think that very often literature isn't the best place to go to understand the moment that we're in but the moment that we're in has so many elements that are enduring conflicts of human life you know grief right. grief first and foremost and disappointment um right. and i think in that sense you know our bookshelves are filled with um places we can go to think again and again and again about those things um but from time to time certainly you know a lot of the things that i've read that have come out of this moment too i think you know have spoken to those things in a kind of more direct way i think it still remains to be seen how much how quickly it will you know great literature will come out of the experience of the pandemic or of this you know recent four years of this presidency we'll see right Well, do we have time for one more question, do you think? Sure, yeah. Um, um, so the, the last question here um, is about being Jewish and Israeli and connecting to some of those themes in the work and whether my own identity as a Jewish woman influences my writing. Um, I always say that I like feel just enormously lucky to have born into to have been born into such extraordinary material, um, whether it's you know some three thousand plus years of history or whether it's the richness of Jewish text or Jewish humor or you know Jewish psychological familial complexity. I think it's some it's we we are born into material that we then wrestle with all of our lives. And I think a lot of times as young writers, we resist that, we resist what's our own. And then at some point there's this kind of reckoning and an acceptance of it. And then a different form of wrestling begins that you, you, this is what you are and what you have to work with and the place you have from which to speak to what you hope will eventually be something universal. Um, and I guess, I guess the last thing I'd say is that 
you know, the foundation of so much Jewish thinking is the value of doubt, of the sustaining of uncertainty, right? Like there's no really very hard to think of um, any sacred text more filled with that value than, you know, rabbinical texts in the Talmud. And, you know, there's always this idea in rabbinical thinking that the moment that an argument is resolved, it's a kind of failure of the discussion. The goal is to keep the argument aloft. And I think that some training, and it doesn't need to happen in Hebrew school, and it doesn't, you don't need to be like in Cheder or whatever, you know, to, to learn that, that it hap it's sort of passed down as a way of being even in families, but this kind of insistence on inhabiting that place of doubting and argumentation and uncertainty is very, very literary. You know, it's not uniquely Jewish. You find it in, 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 in it, that ambiguity is, is what the novel is based on. It's the foundation of the novel. Um, and so I feel somehow grateful for um, whatever comfort I learned to have with being uncomfortable, <laughs> which is my Jewish heritage. Yeah, and I think a sort of converse to what you just said is that that when faced with the impossibility of, of um, arriving at one solution to a complex problem, um, Judaism all, often responds with storytelling. I was almost said always responds with storytelling. I feel like it's that's the way it goes. It's like we, instead of, of couching a debate in a binary, we instead turn to the um, multi-variability of human life um, for as an interpretive tool um, and as a tool for argument. And, uh, and so if you're raised in that tradition, I feel like it comes naturally to want to think about human experience that way, and especially to turn to fiction for, you know, as a means to embrace all of that complexity, you know. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, that combined with like a lifelong, like spiritual education that you can have as a secular Jewish person in poetry and in literature um, is a pretty powerful education to have as a writer. Julie and Nicole, thank you so much for an amazing conversation. And thanks to everybody in the audience. Um, and good night. <laughs>